All right, Hosea chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Bari, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in those days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dublim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel and in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will have no for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up to the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, You are my people, and to your sisters, You have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah. And please be seated. I uh, know a man from back home where I grew up in Philadelphia who became an atheist. Uh, This man was a pastor's son. He was a member of the church, baptized him, never missed a church event, and was the person you could depend on to always answer the questions in Sunday school class. If you ask this man why he was an atheist, he would have a very long list. He might start off by talking about some of the unkind things Christians have done to him. He might ask, how could a loving and powerful God allow three people who were exceptionally close to him to die in close succession to one another? He might even be as so bold as to say he thinks science has replaced God and made him obsolete. But I think if this man were honest, he would have to say that he never really was a Christian that he was too in love with his sins and his addictions, and worse of all, that he thought he was too smart for God. Can God love a person like that? Can he treasure and want a relationship with someone who has turned his back on him and despised him? Now, before we give the easy answer to that question, we need to I think, pause and kind of let that marinate for a second, because I think that question strikes at some of our own insecurities. We often ask ourselves, how can God love me if I'm committing this sin? God currently feels distant. Does he love me? Or, you know, my past is so broken. It's so ugly. I've relapsed again. Does God love me? There are going to be two things that Hosea chapter 1 is going to help us see. The first is how God sees sin, how ugly it is to him, how personally he takes it. But God also will use Hosea to show us 
how much he loves us despite our sin. God reverses the lives of sinful people by making them his people. God reverses the lives of sinful people by making them his people. Now please keep prayerfully listening. This passage will reassure us that God can love the man that we've mentioned at the beginning here and ourselves. Now to see how God reverses the lives of sinful people by making them his people, we need to understand how God views sin. God shows us his response to sin in Hosea's calling and in the names God gives Hosea's kids. In verse 1, God calls Hosea to marry a habitually adulterous woman. Now, there's a lot of debate about uh, Gomer in, in, among scholars. Some say, you know, is she really an adulterous woman? When was she an adulterous woman? And I think there's so much tension and wrestling because we find this command offensive. Now, however you interpret the person of Gomer, the offensiveness is intentional. I think that God does that because he's trying to help us see that whenever we are committing sin, it is like a wife being unfaithful to her husband. Now at this point, some people might start to say, especially maybe the man we mentioned at the beginning or or others, you know, if God is a loving God, why doesn't he just let people worship whatever they think makes them happy? Um, You know, if, if that's love... Let them be the way that they are. There, there are two issues with that kind of thinking. The first is that love is never a license for sin. 1 John 5.3 is very clear about that. But the second issue is that this forgets the fact that God is a jealous God. I think one of the best illustrations of, of God's jealousy comes from a, a rapper who will be familiar to you because of Troy, a, a rapper by the name of Shai Lin. Shai Lin has a song called The Jealous One, and in that song he writes, the God of the Bible who invites our trust must be understood to be nothing like us. Most of the time, human jealousy will hurt you, but when it comes to God, his jealousy is a virtue. One of his awesome perfections surely thunders his law and protects his glory. He gave us the marriage relationship to acquaint us with a faint taste of this. A wife for her husband, husband for wife, the only time jealousy is right in this life. But just as the distance is great between earth and stars, so God's thoughts are much higher than ours. So his thought, jealousy is on a whole other level, unintelligible to the soul of the rebel. And in sacred scripture, God paints the picture. It's aimed to shake your frame. It straight convicts you, and that's what it should do. God's jealousy is frightful, yet it's delightful and good too. I couldn't think of much worse if I tried than a dude who smirks if you flirt with his bride. So tell me, what kind of a God would he be if he wasn't bothered to see idolatry? Is God just supposed to sit back and laugh and withhold his wrath when he's been replaced by a golden calf? You say, I don't worship a golden calf. Well, for us, it's self and sex and loads of cash, atrocious paths. We still don't know the half of how these things provoke his holy wrath. So we sit back and wonder how come God took his jealous anger out on his son so that those of us who trust in him can see like we're supposed to see and be forgiven for our spiritual adultery. Why is God so upset in Hosea? Because he is so jealous and so holy. So holy and so jealous that he cannot be in the presence of sin. Um, 
And when we do sin, it is like we have been cheating on him. These truths should shock us that he would love us in Christ. More on that to follow. Next, the the triune God's pain over sin is further seen in the names he gives Hosea's children. The first child's name is Jezreel. Now, for those of you who like puns, the book of Hosea is loaded with puns. There are actually several puns in the name Jezreel, but for time's sake, we're just going to focus on one. Both in English and in Hebrew, Jezreel sounds a lot like Israel. Combined with verse 5, Hosea is saying Jezreel represents all of Israel, which is going to experience military humiliation. Now, this would have been shocking at the time because Israel was a powerful and prosperous nation. Now, part of the reason they needed to experience military humiliation was because of Israel's ruler, Jehu. Jehu had killed people God had told him, did not tell him to kill in order to secure his throne. He also led people into idolatry, and they persisted in that, which drove them into deeper unfaithfulness before God. But Jehu is not the sole reason Israel is going to be crushed. Verse 2 makes clear that the whole nation is sinning against God. Accordingly, God is right in judging people because they are the ones persisting in adulterous idolatry. The next child's name, No Mercy, in verses 6 through 7, intensifies the situation. In Exodus 34, 6 through 7, God identifies himself as someone who is merciful. But through Hosea's daughter, God is saying his favor, his mercy, is being removed from Israel. The situation gets even uglier with the last child when God effectively disowns his people. What is terrifying about this passage is God is almost negating some of his promises. Throughout the Old Testament, God had made a promise that he would be Israel's God and they would be his people. But here, God says the opposite. The Lord is telling his people, I am no longer concerned with you. But it's not just a lack of concern. God slips in a fourth name here, and it's a painful pun on his own name. Did you catch it? Many of you are familiar that when God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus, he gives his personal name, which is I am. When God says, I am not your God, he's telling his people Israel that their sins have made him not I am. Now God does not stop being God, but he is saying that he will have nothing to do with Israel. Now this is a very grim picture But even here, God promises rescue and restoration. Again, the message is hidden in the name. Hosea's name means salvation. Yes, this is a rough first chapter, but hidden in the prophet's name is the promise that God saves. Also, remember how I mentioned that there are several puns in the name Jezreel. The name has connections to this idea of sowing seed in Hebrew, Hidden in the name Jezreel, God is promising to re-sow his people. God further promises that he will continue to build his church through Judah in verse 6. And we could actually keep going on, but we also need to take note of how patient God has been. Now you might be thinking, patient? All I've seen is anger here. How is God being patient? 
we also need to note that we're jumping right into the middle of Israel's history. I would encourage you, if you haven't ever had the chance to do that, read the books of First and Second Kings. Those books lay the foundation for what goes on in Hosea, and it's ugly. You'll probably leave those books thinking, how was God so patient with these people? Let's also not forget verse 1. Did you see how many kings are mentioned in this passage? God used Hosea to warn his people for decades, and still they did not repent. God is even patient enough to wait for Hosea to have three children, so he can warn them about their sin, but they continue to persist in what they're doing that they know is wrong. Yes, God is very angry in this passage, but he is angry for many good reasons and has made every effort to pull his people from their sin. So how should this text apply to us? What do we need to take away from these first nine verses? What are your thoughts on God and sin? When we think about sin, do we see it for the hideous thing Hosea describes? Are we sad over that look, that tone, that word that was less than kind? Perhaps this past week, were there moments where we felt irritation or fretting? What was most important to us then? When fears fly in, do we grow Do we grieve unbelief and cling to what God's promises are? Do we take seriously the input of others in our lives, both for good or for bad? Are we paying attention to what we're seeing and hearing? Or do we tell ourselves, you know, this was just a little white lie I told to save my reputation. Or this is the only time this month I visited these sites or viewed these videos. The reason I'm asking these questions is because all of these dig into what our idols are, the things, the affections of our hearts. Pastor Timothy Keller warns that if we love anything more than God, we have an idol. Even loving good things more than God is still idolatry. In Hosea's time, people idolized both graven images and prosperity and military superiority. But here's the problem. Idols always overpromise and under deliver. Careers, people, positions, etc. cannot give you what only God can. If idolatry is so broad, we can be certain that we all have idols. And this means we are all spiritually adulterous. And if we have idols, we need to ask ourselves, how do we view God? Do we view him as our creator who rightly rules and reigns over us? Do we see him as the long-suffering king whose patience should lead us to repentance? In particular, do we see the sufferings of Jesus Christ as the power and motivation for striving to live in godliness? Now, if you are saying no to some of these things, I, I would encourage you to be very concerned for your soul. I beg you, read Romans 6. Read 1 John. See how awful sin is, how holy God is, and how loving Jesus is. Abusing God's grace will make you like Israel, and the price that they paid was unbearable. But if you are someone who's sitting here and all you are hearing is God's wrath, you need to also pause to remember God's love and his promises for rescue. Yes, God is very stern, but his sternness is a picture of his love still. 
He would not discipline Israel if he did not love Israel. Remember, too, he has shown us his love and rescue through Christ. So what have we said so far? God is holy and jealous, so holy and jealous that sin, and specifically idolatry, is like cheating on him. God shows the depths of his pain in Hosea's children's names. These names promise military humiliation, the removal of God's favor, and disowning his people. In all this, God still promises salvation, and we have seen that salvation in Christ. Jesus is the reason we see sin's ugliness, God's holiness, and strive for repentance. Now, God reverses the lives of sinful people by making them his people. Look again at Hosea 1.10 through 2.1. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said of them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, from, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters you have received mercy. In these verses, God promises to reverse all of his judgments. In fact, the expression, children of the living God, is God assuring his people that he will be I am to them, and they will be his people. The covenant God had said he would end, he promises to reinstitute. The good news does not stop there. God has in mind in these verses something bigger than anyone could have imagined, and it involves all of us. God makes his covenant promises available to people who are not ethnically Jewish. This comes out very clearly in Romans 9, where the Apostle Paul writes, starting in verse 19, You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me? Has the potter no right over the clay to say to the same lump, uh, to make one lump a vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. That's anybody who's not ethnically Jewish. As he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. In the broader context of Romans 9, Paul is drawing out what it means to truly be God's people. And of all of the passages that the Holy Spirit led Paul to, he leads him to Hosea. And this reality drives one scholar to say that to be called God's people is to be a harlot embraced and restored by God's love. Put more simply, if you call yourself a Christian, you have admitted to God that you are unfaithful and you need him to embrace and save you. And he has joyfully done that in Jesus Christ. We began today by asking if God could 
love a man who had turned his back on him and despised him. And I can tell you for a fact that God does love that man because I am that man. In high school, I quietly slipped into atheism and God-hating and believing that I was wise in my own eyes, that I, I did, had no need for him. But God in his mercy did not leave me there. He exposed my sin to me and brought me under the weight of his conviction. But it didn't stop with conviction. He also welcomed me back to him. But how could I be welcomed back? I had denied the principles that I had been raised with. I had begun living a life that was secular and godless. How could God love me? Because Jesus Christ got what I deserved. Jesus Christ was humiliated in the greatest spiritual warfare on earth on the cross. Jesus Christ was shown no mercy so that I could receive mercy. Jesus Christ was turned not into a person so I could regain and have an identity that I had despised. And God was not I am to his own son so that I could be part of the covenant and the household of God. But the goodness and kindness of Christ to me and to all Christians does not stop there. We read this during our past the peace time, but look again at 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. When we come to God in Christ, we are given an identity that is tied to God's mercy in Jesus. We are no longer people who have no mercy, but people who have received Christ's mercy. We are not identified by our sins, but by a Savior who is greater than sin. We also are united to people of many races, nations, languages, traditions, and and so much more. Jesus Christ transcends all cultural divides. We are no longer measured by our skin, education, economic status, or anything else. All we are known by is the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Now, I wish I could go on and turn this into a a sermon on 1 Peter 2. Thankfully, Troy's already done that. Um, So we'll just head into some application at this point. So in the first half, we discussed how we all have idols We all have sinned in some fashion or another, and we all deserve the curses that are promised in Hosea 1, 2 through 9. But Jesus took those curses for us. Now, if you are still someone who is not a Christian, who is still under God's wrath, you can be freed today. All you need to do is confess to God that you have been unfaithful, that only the perfect faithfulness of Jesus Christ can stand in your place And if you do this, then today you will be someone who has received mercy. You will also be a people when you had been previously disowned. Now, for those of us who are already part of the royal priesthood, how are we helping to spread God's mercy? Consider who is someone in your life um, who you can share and be a channel of God's mercy to. Parents of young children, the little moments are big in God's kingdom. Your response to sin can again and again image what God is like. 
Perhaps mercy in your life means moving graciously towards a person who is difficult to love. Maybe pursuing mercy means repenting this morning of bitterness that you might have towards another person. Ask, is there someone I have not forgiven today? Remember in all of these things that there is, there is difficulty and there is beauty and there is growth, but you know, it can be challenging sometimes. Like we mentioned in, at the beginning, our own insecurities confront us. And sometimes it's hard to believe that we can be loved when we still struggle to love others. It's important to remember that in Christ we are new creations. I am not the man I once was, and if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are not the person you used to be either. Christ has made perfect peace between us and God. He loves us that much. Would you all please close with me in prayer?